Well, I trust that even this morning in our uh, singing, in our praying, that you have already experienced the presence of Jesus. And I, let's pray that as we get into his word, uh, that he will speak to us in a powerful way, that he would convict us, encourage us, strengthen us, rebuke us, whatever it is that we need this morning, that he would do so through the power of his preached word. Let's turn to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, if you are uh, new with us today, we are in a series going through the book of Acts. Uh, it's in the New Testament. If you're new to the Bible, just look in the table of contents. You can find a page number for Acts uh, and go to Acts 9, Acts chapter 9. We are walking passage by passage through the book of Acts. And we come this morning to one of the most famous stories in the Bible, and it is the conversion of a man named Saul. And uh, it's important to know, just to get it out of the way, right off the bat, that Saul is also known as Paul, uh, who wrote the majority of the New Testament uh, by the hand of, uh, by the Spirit of God, the direction of God. Um, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Ephesians, Galatians, Philippians, Colossians, all, all of these books, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, uh, written by the hand of this man who is also called here Saul, and we're going to learn how he was converted this morning. But what I want to see in this narrative is not just simply an interesting story of somebody's conversion, as interesting as it is. I want us to see what I think is the, the main point of the text, and that is that God has the power to change. Uh, it's all about God's power. It's all about God's ability to reverse an enemy and turn an enemy into a friend. So let's read it together. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through the beginning of verse 19. It says, Paul, but, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him, for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any uh, belongings belonging to the way, the way would be a uh, nickname for the Christians, by the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do, what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise, and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judah look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, 
I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell off from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. I want to preach this morning on the topic reversal of an enemy reversal of an enemy let's pray and ask God for his help father we do pray that you would give us eyes and ears to hear your word this morning help me communicate your word not just simply my own ideas pray that you would open our hearts to the gospel to the good news of who Jesus is that we might see Christ that we might know that if you could save Saul you can certainly save us it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <coughs> Excuse me. That's just getting over the end of a cold, by the way. I feel like in today's world, like, a cough is the new leprosy. <laughs> just have to tell you, it was just a cold. My daughter and I were in Starbucks. This is not the introduction of my sermon, by the way. <laughs> and she, uh... Uh, had to get out of the Starbucks as quickly as possible because she had to cough. <laughs> I just found that to be funny. She was like, I was so afraid I was going to cough in there. Um, but I'm more than six feet away from everybody. And it was just a cold, Eric, all right? So stop freaking out. And I'm vaccinated. That's controversial too, isn't it? <laughs> Don't even. Here we go. All right, let's get back to the text. Let me start with this question. How does change even happen? How does change happen? You might feel like you need to be changed. As a matter of fact, maybe that's why you're in church today. But I want to start with the question, how does change happen? Well, let me use the example of a pool table. Let's say you walk into a billiards hall and you're going to shoot some pool and uh, you, your, your eight ball is near the corner pocket. How do you get your eight ball into the corner pocket? Well, it's not going to roll on its own, is it? Uh, you're going to hit a cue ball and it's going to cross the table and tap the eight ball and cause it to drop into the corner pocket. Isaac Newton's first law of motion was this. Everything continues in a state of rest, or an object stays in motion with the same speed and direction, unless it is compelled to change by forces impressed upon it. Meaning, a stationary object will not move unless it is acted upon. 
Your ball is not going to move unless it is acted upon by another ball, or we could call a change agent. An astronaut flung into outer space will in probably a very horrific way continue in the same direction infinitely unless he is acted upon by another change uh, agent, an outside force. And you've experienced this your entire life without realizing it. You, you learned something, you were acted upon, and it changed you. You met somebody, and you changed. You had an experience, and you changed. You were abused, and you changed. You were honored, and it changed you. Our entire life is being acted upon, and that's really how we change. But there is a deeper question that the Bible is after, and that is how do we change at the core of who we are? Meaning, how do we change spiritually? The most important aspect of who we are is our relationship with God. And that affects also our horizontal relationships with each other. And that is what the Bible would understand to be your spiritual reality. Now, in the Bible, we are spiritually dead. Something we talk a good bit about theologically here at the Garden Church. You are spiritually dead, according to the Bible, in your natural state. Not spiritually sleepy. Not almost alive. Not somewhat dead. But rather, you're spiritually dead. You are dead as a spiritual doorknob, all right? You are dead as dead can be at a spiritual level. That then leads me to the question, how do we change spiritually? Because if we are spiritually dead, there is no human actor that can cause us to wake up. There is no book that we can read that would give us the, oh, aha, I'm alive. There is Nothing within ourself that would cause us to change. As a matter of fact, in some ways, we could liken our spiritual selves to that eight ball sitting there with no life, unable to move itself. We are spiritually dead unless we are acted upon. Are you tracking with me? So this morning, as we look at this conversion of this man named Saul, I want to declare to you who the actor is. I want to declare to you from the Word of God who this change agent is that has the power to change somebody like Saul. I want to invite you to journey with me on this Damascus road as we see this man fall before this light. And as we see, as one theologian called it, the reversal of an enemy. But I don't want to do it to highlight Saul. I want to do it to highlight the one who's got the power to change Saul. I want to uh, talk through this in four different categories. First, I want to talk about Saul's perversion. Secondly, Saul's powerlessness. Third, Saul's provision. And fourth, Saul's promise. So first, let's look at Saul's perversion. And by that, I don't mean that Saul was sexually perverted. Usually when we think of the word perverted or perversion, we automatically think sexual. But I'm using that in a very dictionary definition kind of way, which is this, a distortion or corruption of what was first intended. 
in that sense, Paul was perverted religiously. Meaning, Paul was himself a Jew. He was very much so an advocate of Judaism. Uh, However, the Jewish faith was intended, listen, to point the people of, of course, Israel and also the people of the world to the Messiah. But now, Paul, or Saul, uh, has a, what we could call a perverted religion. Uh, He has missed who the Messiah is. And his religion is no longer true Judaism. It's no longer the true religion of God. But in Saul's mind, he is being faithful. And I cannot emphasize that enough. In Saul's mind, he is being faithful. Yet, he is spiritually blind. In 1991, there was a freakish dust storm that kicked up on I-5 in California, and it uh, created a crash. Cars started bumping into each other because drivers could not see. And little did they know it, as hundreds of cars are barreling down Interstate 5, they're they're heading toward their destruction. For a a three-mile stretch, by the time it was over, there was a three-mile stretch of uh, burned, twisted cars. As, as motorists blinded by the dust drove ignorantly ahead into their destruction. You see, Saul is blind. He cannot see the destruction that, uh, uh, for which he is heading. Saul in his mind is faithful, yet he is actually a villain against God. Look at verses 1 and 2. It says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, he went to the high priest in Jerusalem and he asks him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, another city, so that he might find those and any who he found belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them back in chains to Jerusalem. Listen, Paul was sincere. But personal sincerity doesn't matter if you're not honoring God. You see, think of of all the excuses people make today for sin. Well, I was at least being sincere. Yeah, Saul was being sincere. In his mind, he was sincerely doing what he thought was right. He saw himself, I'm sure, in a long tradition of people who uh, would go after the enemies of God and prevent them from uh, 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 falsehoods and propagating their falsehoods. Saul, in his mind, was sincere. But sincerity is not enough if you are not honoring God. Other times people say, well, God knows my heart. In in Paul's heart, he was doing the right thing. His motives and intentions, according to his own understanding, were right. The problem wasn't whether or not he was following his heart, but whether or not his heart was truly following God. Others say, well, you know, he, he doesn't, 
love Jesus, but he loves God. He doesn't know Jesus, but he knows God. Well, Saul thought he knew God. But Saul did not know God because Saul was not recognizing Jesus as the one sent from God. Saul, my point is this, Saul was completely blind. While he thought he was faithful, he was more like the Egyptian pharaoh who was trying to kill all the Egyptian babies to stomp out the people of God. Enemy number one, the villain, the problem. But as we go on in the text, what we see is that God has the power to turn his enemies into his friends. So let's keep walking through the text. We see, secondly, Saul's powerlessness. Look at verse 3. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Have you ever heard the idiom, he saw the light? We typically use that phrase to reference somebody who all of a sudden has this epiphany. They, they come to this great understanding, like you were always a LeBron James hater, and then you actually watched him play and you saw the light. You tracking with me? You, 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 you thought Folger's coffee was something uh, to, to uh, be enjoyed, and then you tasted Kevin Greer's coffee and you saw the light. I always thought chicken and waffles sounded like a gross combination until I went to Connie's, and then I saw the light. You're tracking with me now. I knew I'd get somebody. If it wasn't LeBron, it was coffee. If not coffee, it was Connie's. <laughs> that, that idiom goes back to the 1600s. When saw the light wasn't just simply an aha, but it was rather a conversion phrase. Something that happened to somebody. Something deep, something profound, in which somebody comes into a, uh, an encounter with Jesus Christ. Saul here sees the light. And it has much more to do uh, with, with eternal things than it does food and coffee and sports. He sees the light. What effect, then, does this light have? So a light shines around him. That light is the very presence of Jesus Christ. What effect does this have on Saul? Well, previously Saul was powerful. But now we see Saul is powerless. Previously Saul was moving with confidence, and now Saul is confused. Previously, Saul's eyes were proud, and now Saul's eyes are blind. Previously, Saul was lifted up in his own glory, and now we find Saul fallen to the ground. This great Saul, this feared man, this powerful soldier, has been knocked off his horse, knocked off his course, by this force, change is going to come. You see, conversion begins with powerlessness. Conversion begins when God knocks us down. 
It begins when, when you realize like everything you knew is wrong. Every way in which you've been organizing your life is off, perverted, tainted. Conversion begins with powerlessness. When I was in high school, I took some lifeguard training, and uh, I, I was taught, I don't know if this is true or not, but I remember the lifeguard trainer telling us that if you're trying to save somebody and they are flailing and they are freaking out, you know, they're going to drown themselves and they're going to drown you, they, he said, take your elbow and whack their head as hard as you can with your elbow and knock them out and now save them. Now, don't take my word for it, I don't know, but that does give us a good picture as to what's happening here. In conversion, God knocks us out. First step is this holy elbow to the temple, and we are laying flat, confused, and powerlessness. I wonder if, if anybody here could testify to the fact that God came to you one day and said, nope, I'm going to wreck everything about your life. Everything about your life, I am about to flip it over. All of your dreams, hogwash. All of your ideas, they're not good enough. Like, I'm just going to completely come in and wreck your life. But it's not for your harm. It's actually for your good. Because the life you're living is blind, like a motorist driving blindly to your destruction. And God says, I'm going to get in the way of that. I'm going to flatten your tires. I'm going to take out your engine. I'm going to do whatever I have to do to get you to stop in your course. The point I'm chasing here is this, is when Jesus comes to Saul, he doesn't come in judgment. He comes in on a rescue mission. He doesn't come to harm you. He comes to help you. When Jesus comes in this way, he doesn't come to hurt you. He comes to heal you. Jesus here, he's, he says to Saul, let's look at it together in verse 4. The voice of Christ speaks and he says, Saul, Saul, which is uh, an old way in the Bible of uh, uh, the divine speaking to a human being, the repetitive nature of the name, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting, what does he say? Me. Isn't that interesting? He was going after the way. He was going after the men and women. He was going after followers. But Jesus doesn't say, why are you persecuting the church? He doesn't say, why are you persecuting my disciples? But you see, church, Jesus takes this personally. Jesus so aligns himself with his disciples that if you persecute the disciples of Jesus, he takes it personally. Jesus then, this is for you saints who may have experienced persecution in this world or are uh, currently experiencing some level of persecution, rejection because of righteousness' sake. 
when, when you are persecuted, Jesus does not only see that, Jesus is beside you. Uh, he's one with you. If the world hates you, they hate him. If the world comes at you for righteousness' sake, they come at Jesus Christ. I, I will put it the way the hymn writer put it. In the midst of persecution, stand by me. In the midst of persecution, stand by me. When my foes in war array undertake to stop my way, thou who rescued Paul and Silas later in Acts, stand by me me. Don't you know that Christ is with you? If you are a Christian, you are in Christ. He doesn't just care for you. He's one with you. He's aligned with you. And so when he comes to Saul, he says, hey, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul is left blinded. Defeated. Powerless. The text goes on, the story goes on as, as his friends lead him by the hand to Damascus where Jesus directs him to go. Jesus already has a plan in place for Saul. Go to Damascus. I've got a plan for you there. This humbled figure now is led to the city of Damascus, and this leads me to my third point, and that is Paul's, or Saul's, we're calling him Saul today, Saul's provision. Saul's provision. He gets to the city of Damascus, and it says in the text that for three days he doesn't eat or drink. He is utterly destitute. He has hit rock bottom. Now, there was a disciple there, verse 10, in Damascus named Ananias. God comes to Ananias in verse 11, and he says, I've already given Paul a vision of you, a man named Ananias who's going to come to him and, and, and help him out. And he says, Ananias, I want you to go to Straight Street. Luke is very... Um, uh, particular as to what he decides to include in his writings and what he doesn't include. It's interesting to me that he actually includes the name of the street in Damascus, which is a street called Straight, in verse 11. Straight, throughout the book of Acts, uh, is a word that references morally upright. It's just God's irony. God likes to do this kind of stuff. The street that Paul ended up on uh, in a house in Damascus is a word that means morally upright. The enemy of God, the morally broke, is about to have his life completely transformed and changed. He is about to experience and receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We discover in verse 12 what Saul has been doing. He's been praying. He's broken. He's looking to God, likely for hope. Now in, in verses 13 and 14, as you can imagine, Ananias pushes back. Look at verse 13. He says, But Ananias answered the Lord, 
He says, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to to bind all who call on your name. This is a bad dude. Not only did Saul want to push the Christians out of Jerusalem, but now that he got them out of Jerusalem, Saul now is going with the authority of the high priests to the neighboring cities to find those Christians and to bring them back in chains. I don't think you understand how bad and destitute things were looking for the church because of this man Saul. I I, I think we can understand why Ananias would push back a little bit. You know, imagine with me if there was somebody in our own community who is so hostile toward Christianity. And and then as a result, they're so hostile toward the Garden Church. And they know who the Garden Church members are. And they've they've got a copy of our membership directory. And they've been calling some of your phone numbers. And they see you walking down the streets and they're harassing you and, 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 and threatening you. And even murderous threats. And the city's doing nothing about it. And we're just hoping that this dude just moves, Right? We don't even think about the reality that God could save them. And then someone comes to you and says, hey, so-and-so, this individual, wants to see you. They're at a house over on Druid Hill Avenue. And they want to see you. They're pray- they've been praying for three days. You would be like, I don't know about that. We, we, we can understand why Ananias would push back a little bit. I mean, he, this, this guy was wicked. He was evil. He oversaw the murder of Stephen. He is heartless. He is hate-filled. But look at verse 15. It's mind-blowing. But the Lord says, this is God's response to Ananias. He says, go. Look at this. For he is a chosen instrument of mine. Is that not mind-blowing to you? Based on what? Saul? That guy? He's, he's, he's been coming at us. He's murderous. He's threatening. He's evil. He's wicked. And God says, I want you to go. And here's the reason why. It's because he is a, he is a chosen instrument of mind. That is a phrase of quality. Referencing the quality of this instrument based on God's favor. This is what's called unconditional election. There is nothing about Saul that would cause God to say, I want to use this guy. I want to bless this guy. I want this guy's name to go down uh, recorded in the Word of God, which endures forever. No, this is completely unconditional grace. The baddest dude is going to become the biggest missionary by God's grace. God is about to take enemy number one. And he's saying, this is my chosen instrument to take the gospel to kings and to princes and to my own people and to the ends of the earth. I might just put it this way, that God just wanted to show off. 
God just wanted to show his power that he could take the, the, the worst guy that we currently know in human history and turn him into the, God, uh, the, the evangelist to the, the Gentiles. Praise God for his ability to show off. Amen? Now, there's a second reason, though, that he wants Ananias to go visit Paul. There's another four. Look at verse 16. He says, For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Just think of, think of what's going on here. Saul uh, begins Acts chapter 9 trying to cause the suffering of the people of God. And as the chapter comes toward uh, the midsection, God says, I need to show him that the one who's trying to cause my people to suffer is actually going to suffer for the rest of his life for my name. Now, some of us might hear that. We might think, well, there, Saul's getting what he deserves. This is God's punishment to Saul. God's kind of getting back at Saul. Now I understand what God's doing, and he's just going to make him suffer. But that's not the way that, that Saul or Paul understood suffering, is it? What did Paul say about suffering? Well, he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, Colossians 1.21. He says, I want to know Christ, yet to know the power of his resurrection and to participate in his sufferings, Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us, Romans chapter 8, verse 18. He invites his young friend Timothy. He says, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier for Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3. He sees it as a blessing. He says, for you, it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake. Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. You see, the whole of Saul's life was transformed. Not part of it, but the whole of it. You know, religious people come to God and say, I'm going to give you a part of my life. But I'm not going to give you the whole of my life. I'm going to give you Sunday mornings, a little bit of Bible time, a little prayer time, but I'm not going to give you the whole of my life. That's too much. But then there's also the non-religious folks who say, oh no, I get it. To become a Christian is really to enter into a life of suffering with Jesus Christ. That is too much for me. I'm just staying away from religion altogether. But a citizen of the kingdom of God, a church member, brother and sister, saint, we see things differently. We see it like this. Paul says it in Romans 8, 17. He says, if children, heirs also. Heirs of God. Fellow heirs with Christ. But listen to this. If indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Romans 8, verse 17. You see, to, to deliver this message that, Saul, you're going to suffer with me, you're going to suffer the rest of your life for my sake, is actually the greatest blessing in this world that any of us could ever ask for. To stand with Jesus Christ, 
to be rejected by the world for Jesus Christ. To enter into His sufferings. Because we know that if we suffer with Him, we are raised with Him. And we are an heir with Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. Now let me turn this a little bit. Let us also have the courage of Ananias. This dude who said, okay, I'll go. You said enough. I'm going to trust you, God, and I'm walking down McCullough Street, and I'm going to go visit this guy. Let us know that God has the power to make your biggest enemies citizens of his kingdom. Let us know that God can transform anybody, even a man named Saul. The greatest enemies of God can become the greatest friends of God and his people because of God's power. We go with courage because God is a powerful God. We see here then lastly, Saul's promise. Ananias says yes to God. And he goes to Saul. Now, uh, it's, it's likely that Saul already knew the gospel message. I would actually say with confidence, Saul already knew the gospel message prior to his conversion. Well, how do we, how do we know that? He, he was there when Stephen gave the gospel message right before Stephen's murder. Now, something that we need to understand, church, is if somebody hears the gospel message and rejects it, it doesn't mean that God can't use that message sometime down the road to bring salvation to that individual. Sometimes there is a delay between the first time somebody hears the gospel message and the moment that they receive the gospel message. I heard of a man who was listening to a preacher at six years old, and it wasn't until he was in his 90s on his deathbed that he said that God brought to remembrance the message he heard at age six, and he used that message almost a, a century later to convert him. I think of uh, Mitchell. Your, Mitchell gave a testimony at uh, a Wednesday night Bible study just a couple weeks ago who uh, he was living a life in the streets for himself, partying. Uh, he had made up his mind that he was going to be a Muslim. And his brother came and shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with him, and he rejected it. Listen, don't be discouraged if you share the gospel with somebody and they don't listen. You don't know what God is going to do with that seed that you sowed in that individual's life. For in Mitchell's story, later that day, he was at a party. Uh, God was messing with him, knocking all, him off of his course. And by 3 a.m. that morning, his brother's message was recalled, and God used that to save Mitchell's life. He saw the light. Praise God for that story. Amen? Well, I think in some ways that's what's going on here with Saul. I say that because we don't see a particular gospel uh, presentation to Saul. But we know that Saul knew the gospel. Are you tracking with me? And so as Ananias goes to him, uh, he, he goes with this confidence that God can save the greatest of sinners and turn the lights on. He goes with the confidence that this gospel message, that Jesus Christ came into the world for sinners, applies to the greatest sinner in this room. He went with the confidence 
knowing that uh, the, the message that Jesus Christ lived the life that we should have lived and his righteousness can be donated to your account if you only turn to him and believe that that message can be applied to the greatest sinner in this room right now. Ananias goes with the confidence knowing that Jesus rose three days later from the grave giving uh, assurance that we are forgiven of our sins, that we have hope of resurrection one day ourselves. And that applies to the greatest sinner in this room. And he went with the confidence, knowing that all who turn and trust in Jesus will be saved. Listen, if you are not a Christian, I implore you, I invite you, I plead with you to come to Jesus now. Come to Christ now. That is the message of the gospel, that there is forgiveness available for your sins. There is new life available for your sins through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. If only you turn and trust in Jesus Christ. Now, you can do that at any time. It could be that in 60 years from now, God will turn the lights on for you. But do it now. Don't wait Don't wait. Every day, you are one step away from eternity. Don't wait. Trust Christ now. Ananias went with that kind of confidence. And he shows up, and there's a promise given to Saul. Promise number one. Saul will be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. In verse 17. No longer will Saul be filled with his own spirit. No longer is he going to be filled with his own pride. But the the Spirit of God is coming to take residence in Saul's life. That is massive. Number two, Saul will now see clearly. In verse 18, it says the scales fall off of Saul's eyes. Physically, he now sees Uh, While physically this is miraculous, it is spiritually signifying. God was trying to show what's going on at the deeper level in Saul's life. And he can now see. Thirdly, Saul will be included in the family of God. In verse 18, it says they arose and he was baptized. That means first, death to his old life and resurrection to his new life. Listen, Saul never went back. He never went back. He never tried to keep one foot in that world and one foot in the other world. He never tried to straddle the fence. He never tried to play both teams. He never went back to his old life. I'm not saying that Saul was perfect. I'm not saying that he immediately achieved sanctification. We see in his writings that he did not. Yes, he still struggled with sin, but he never went back. And isn't that what baptism signifies? Listen, if you have been baptized, you have died to your old self, and you are raised to walk in the newness of life with Jesus Christ. That's what it signifies. Let's not go back to our old lives. Let's not go back to our dead lives. Let's not go back to our self-glorifying wickedness. Saul has new life. The second thing that baptism 
indicates is that there are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. Saul himself was brought into this family. We're not going to just put you in a corner, Saul. We're not going to be ashamed about you. We're not going to hide you. We are actually publicly putting the symbol of you being a physical representation of Jesus Christ. We are placing that symbol on you. And you are now displaying and representing who Jesus is to the world. Isn't this amazing? Saul was baptized. As the text closes, Saul's misery is over and his symptoms are reversed. We see that he regains his eyesight and in verse 19 he eats a good meal. Saul has been changed. Let me close with one quick thought on grace, on the topic of grace. Everybody say grace. Grace. We typically think of grace as the removal of sins, the forgiveness of sins, and the acceptance of God. And that is true. Amen? Grace includes the forgiveness of sins and the acceptance of God. But there is another aspect of grace that I think sometimes we as Christians overlook. And that is power. Grace is not only a removal or acceptance, grace is also power. Paul himself said, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the, come on, power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Grace is God's power acting upon you, causing you to believe, causing you to receive, causing you to cling to Him, causing you to be transformed from one degree of glory to the next. I want you to know the grace of God because the grace of God is how change happens. He is the change agent. He is the actor, that the cue ball that bumps into us and causes us to move, if you would. God has power. Tonight I have to get to Indianapolis. How am I going to get to Indianapolis this evening? I'm not going to run there. I'm not going to bike there. I'm not even going to drive there. My car won't make it. I'm going to go down to BWI, and I'm getting on a Southwest flight. Now, when I sit on that flight, I don't have in myself the ability to fly. You might. I've never been gifted with flight. However, that plane is going to act upon my body, and it's going to change my locale. And I am going to fly inside the power of that plane to Indianapolis. You're tracking with me. Do you know the power of God unto salvation? As God acts upon us, He puts you in Christ. In Him. In Him. He puts you in Christ. And as a result of being in Christ, you have died with Him. And then you are raised to walk in the newness of life. That's the power of God. That is how people are uh, changed through being 
in Christ. You can't walk there. You can't drive there. You can't bike there. You've got to get into Jesus Christ. How does that happen? Turn to him. Trust in him. And it's a promise. You're in him. You're in him. You are. Has he done it for you? Have you experienced this power? Listen, church, God took a a persecutor named Saul and changed him into a preacher. We've seen so far in Luke and Acts, God took a denier named Peter and changed him into a bold evangelist. God took an immoral man later on named Augustine and changed him into one of the greatest theologians the world has ever known. God took a works-based monk named Luther and changed him to a reformer. God took a philosophical skeptic named C.S. Lewis and changed him into a defender of the faith. God took a young street dude named Mitchell and changed him into a saint. If he did it for one, he can do it for you. Is there somebody... Who would say, if God didn't wreck my life, my life would have wrecked me. If God didn't knock me off my course, my course would have ruined me. I wonder if there's somebody here who is thankful for the power of the gospel. I wonder if there's somebody here who knows the unconditional grace of God in Christ Jesus. Is there somebody who is not wanted by humans, but wanted by God? Rejected by humans, but accepted by God. Formerly an enemy with God, but changed into His chosen instrument. Church, give this God glory. Because He has the power to save. Why did He do it? Why did He do it? He did it because He set His love on you. He did it it because He wanted to change you. He did it because He wanted to save you. Maybe He did it just to show off. Just to show the world that he could take somebody like you and change you into a lover and a worshiper of him. To show the world, I once was lost, but now I'm fine. I was blind, but now I see. Amen? Father, we thank you for being the change that we needed. We thank you for the fact that your, your grace includes the forgiveness and removal of sins, but it also is the act of power through which we believe, receive, and are changed. God, help us cling to your grace. Let us be encouraged by the life of Saul. If you can change him, you can change all of us. If you can change him, You can change our biggest enemies. God, do a work in our midst through us. May we see Christ glorified. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.